0: Welcome to the CRE podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Poatic.
1: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast sponsored by First National. Today I'd like to welcome our guest Wendy Waters, the Senior Director of Research Services and Strategy at GWL Realty Advisors. Thanks for coming on, Wendy.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Would you also like to welcome your co-host? Oh yeah, and and Adam Poatic, my co-host. He doesn't he's not really important, so <laughs> I, I forget about him
0: often. <laughs> okay. You get the first question there for then Adam. <laughs> <laughs> well, today is a topic that uh both Aaron and I have a ton of experience in. It's apartments. You know, it's one of our, our favorite discussion points. Anybody's a regular listener will know that a lot of our episodes have had this topic as a the forefront. But today we're gonna get more into the data points of what's actually happening in the market. In the past, we've done a lot of development discussion and Uh, renting fundamentals, but uh, this should be a little different. This will be a much more broader scope. We're talking nationally. Um, Obviously, we're taking a focus on Toronto and Vancouver because those are the two hottest rental markets in the country. But Wendy's background is in research. Is that a a fair statement?
2: Yeah, I've been in real estate research uh, since 2002. I was first with Avis Young in Vancouver, the director of research there. And then uh, I joined GWL in 2006 when they moved the research function to Vancouver.
1: Can you give us a quick background on how you ended up in real estate research?
2: Well, the short answer is I answered an ad in the newspaper. Perfect. But uh, why did Avis and Young choose me? I actually have a PhD in history. And uh, I was also briefly I was in the dot-com boom and bust, including writing at stockgroup.com. And... Avis and Young was looking for someone to change real estate research at that time to get more beyond just quarterly reporting of stats and to really look at the drivers of the market. What's really affecting real estate demand, particularly in the office sector? So they asked me to come on board and uh, change the way real estate research was done, at least uh, in the Vancouver market and in their their shop.
1: What year was that?
2: This was in 2002, 2002. that I joined. Uh, okay. And okay. it was around the time when, if, if for people who monitor Canadian real estate stats, it was only about 2000, 2001, as, as far back as we go to have electronic stats mm. of what was happening in the market. So, you know, finally people had discovered that Excel existed and you could track uh, vacancy rates quarter to quarter and actually start really monitoring what was happening. And then also bringing in, you know, economic, social, demographic trends.
1: Totally off topic, but what was the major focus of your history Ph.D.
2: It's actually some not completely unrelated. I focused on uh, 20th century economic and social development and, you know, particularly as a result of technological change in, in sort of the early 20th century so the roads and radio and how that changed with the way people interacted with the economy grew economies in in developing countries so as it is, well as it is actually
1: real. I thought you were gonna say something like 12th century Belarusian literature or something like that no, no. So yeah it's a lot more
2: on yeah, transportation and uh, communications okay. and uh, social development so.
0: so it's not the history of apartments but it's still very close <laughs> somewhat yeah, demographic focus. a lot of demographics <laughs> right.
2: and uh, cohort groups and how they changed the way the world works and uh, yeah it was it's definitely helped in a lot of different, uh, using a lot of different sources to understand what's happening or what was happening in the past and bringing, I've brought that into real estate research of using a lot of different sources to understand what's happening in real estate markets, what's driving demand.
1: And as, as part of this research, I'm, I'm assuming it also then is looking forwards and trying to use what's happened in the past to project or, you know, or not predict, but set the trend to kind of determine what's going on going forwards?
2: Definitely. I mean, I think one thing that, that history tells us there's some long-term structural things that don't change very often. And so identifying those versus cyclical change. And then when are we in a situation where it's not just a cyclical change? There's a big change happening to how people are living or working and that may affect uh, what we're thinking portfolio strategy-wise. So trying to figure out both. And you don't always know until after Sure. But you can start to get a sense of yeah, we feel like this is a long-term structural change as opposed to something cyclical or a fad that is you know going to come and go, and we shouldn't be making any changes to long-term strategy as a result, or whether sure. we should be making changes as a result.
1: Now, how many people do you have on your team doing the research? Uh, right
2: now, we have two other two other people each other full-time. Well, one is a summer student, so we just have her for the summer. Right. And then in our company, a lot of people do research as part of their roles. So the two of us in, in research, myself and Anthea Ewan, part of our job is to support all the other research functions going on in the company. The investment team has people that do a lot of research behind investments, the development team for specific sites, and we'll, they'll be working on research and we'll support them, making sure they have the data, the knowledge, uh, portfolio strategy, same thing, the portfolio management team.
1: So are so really we're, touching all sorts of different facets of the business at any one particular yep. time. Yes, yeah, so we're working.
2: Yeah, so we work with yeah, a lot of different teams. And so, yeah, so research is not just in the two of us. it's a lot of people in the company. It's a, our, We're very much a research-focused company. And uh, it's our job to support them, making sure they have the data they need, but also the knowledge, the analysis that we've done. We'll do the big, deep dives and some longer trends. And uh, then... You know, give that to our colleagues to then help them make better decisions. I think it's gotta, be,
0: it's gotta be exciting too that you do all this research, all this work, and then literally billions of dollars follow behind it in order to test your <laughs> to test your
1: theories. You know,
0: Is,
2: yeah, that it,
1: that calls for some sleepless nights, perhaps. <laughs> uh,
2: well, it's not ultimately us making the decision. There's a lot of different people coming in, but certainly it's it's exciting that. Uh, that
1: yeah, but we Wendy can... said this was <laughs> going to be a good project. No, that doesn't happen.
2: Uh, certainly, there's there's certainly some uh, that I guess I have gotten nervous about. One of the first ones that I really stuck my neck. Out for was on Southcore Financial Center that I uh, really thought the and this was in two thousand nine when the banking crisis was going on.
0: What but, city but, is that in?
2: That would be in Toronto. In Toronto, in okay. Toronto here
1: where uh, where
0: we're moving in a few yeah, years. Yeah, no, I know, no, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just so the rest <laughs> just of the context. audience. Yeah, yes, exactly. thank you. Yes, yeah. thank
2: you. Yeah, and one of the write ups, the early write ups on why our clients should go ahead and build. You know. Looked at the long-term economic fundamentals of Toronto. That had changed. What had changed since the previous economic downturns had been harder on the financial sector. And we looked at the long-term viability of the banks and financial. And and really said in two thousand nine, no, this is this is a good project. You move forward on downtown Toronto, and they are, still believe they have, in downtown yeah. Toronto. And uh, obviously, there was a lot of other aspects of that decision, but certainly. More- I had one piece of it in terms of looking at the economic side that uh, proved out, which is nice to cool. see. Yeah.
1: I think it's important for context and then we'll move into the the topic. But um, I mean, clearly Great West Life for its investment purposes are not short-term flips. I mean, these things are long, 50, 100, 150 year. Like maybe you tell me what the duration looks like, but these are long-term investments, right? So it's not a quick buck. There, that So there's a different perspective on what your investment should be and what kind of research you're performing.
2: Yeah, we should probably just back up and say... To the audience, what GWL Realty Advisors sure. is. Yeah. So we manage the real estate assets of pension funds and institutional investors. We They invest in us through funds as well as through direct real estate investments. And yeah, it's a long-term thinking. Uh, they're investing for the long-term pension funds. are using the real estate returns to pay out unit holders. So, it's very rarely are we doing a short-term play. In fact, I can't think of any in recent memory. Sure. Obviously, sometimes we decide to get out of an asset, but the long-term strategy, it's, you know, some of the research job is helping our clients figure out what real estate to be invested, where it would be, what types of assets over the long term. So, you know, and anything we're developing, we're thinking on a 20, 25-year horizon. Okay. So, as we get into the apartments topic you know, we're building purpose-built rental with the idea that we're going to be managing it for our clients for potentially 20 plus years. So unlike a condo developer that might be thinking they need to sell everything once, we might have to sell those units, so to speak, every year mm-hmm. for 20 Absolutely. years. So we've got a future-proof buildings. We've got to think about what's going to be make them viable, not just on opening day when they're the brand new, the shiniest thing on the block, but what's going to make them really viable places to live and homes for people and ultimately investments for our clients over 20 and years.
1: A good segue and, and adaptable too, right? Because you don't know what's going to look like you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years in the future. Where would you like to go? Do you want to talk about just general rental markets or, you know, maybe what your research has has shown where the best opportunities are right now for purpose-built apartments?
2: I'm not sure where we have best opportunities, but there's certainly, obviously, right now, a lot of demand in Vancouver and Toronto. You know, the housing markets, both the ownership market, the rental market, has demand growth exceeding supply growth. So, you know, rents are going up, you know, ownership costs are going up even faster. So those are two markets that obviously we really like, but hard to find hard to find sites sometimes. But we're looking at intensifying some of our existing sites that our clients have if they've got excess uh, space. And then in Vancouver, we've got a two sites that we've bought in the last few years that are getting ready to go under development to add product. Very hard to buy product. It's much easier. We're finding it's a better opportunity for us and our clients to develop new Purpose-built mm-hmm, rental. So mm-hmm. those are two markets that are they're active. But we also like, you know, Calgary and Edmonton uh, for purpose-built rental. Uh, even with
1: And what's uh, driving that? Just you think it's just stable economics?
2: Yeah, there's been uh, you know, renewed job growth, stable economy, challenges, and we'll get to this maybe in another podcast, challenges in in the oil sector, but there's a lot of other diversification happening. There's spin-offs from the University of Alberta up in Edmonton. So uh, we've, we're finding that um, purpose-built rental in those markets we, we like, and there hasn't been a lot of it historically, particularly in Calgary. Edmonton, a lot of pent-up demand for new generation mm-hmm. product, and and that's what we want to bring on there.
1: What about uh, Montreal, Quebec, or Atlantic Canada?
2: Uh, We have, yeah, we have a fair number of apartments in Halifax and and we like that market, although we're not necessarily looking to grow quite as much in Atlantic, but definitely uh, looking at Montreal and Quebec City as places where we'd like to have more purpose-built rental. And we've got some other secondary cities that we're taking. We call them secondary cities, but um, in some ways they're just small primary markets that we're taking a look at, places like Victoria, Kitchener. That we're trying to see if we can we can get a foothold in those markets as well. Interestingly,
1: we found we're doing a ton of of a purpose built apartment financing, and we're finding those smaller markets, much smaller than that. You know, more like the Barry Timmons. You know, almost sort of fifty to a hundred thousand people or, or less, uh, where there has been zero development in fifty 25, 30 40 years, and so. Where you look at the CMC market rents and they say the rents are let's call it a dollar50 per square foot or, or less, and they're building new units, you can get 250, like a huge premium just because there's there's no other competition. And so I'm just interested if you guys have, have done any of that kind of research looking at different smaller markets or I think you're just you're more susceptible to focusing on the larger the large areas.
2: We're tending to look at the larger areas. Um, liquidity is one reason in terms of comfort level, size of the market. Uh, so we've filtered at certain sure. Sizes, Do you have a so minimum
1: size of of development that you you're kind of entertain?
2: Yeah, I think the smallest one we've done has been 80 units. Okay, and I think that's the, that's roughly yeah that makes sense. Yeah, and where or, I'm seeing
1: that this growth in these smaller markets, it's usually in that sort of 30 to 60 unit range. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's not our sweet spot. Our sweet spot would be for new developments would be depending on the market, but certainly over 100 units. Uh, you know, in Vancouver we've got you know one in about 130. In Toronto, most of the the buildings that we're looking at are are bigger on you know, the 300 500 unit
0: size I was going to say even from a deployment of capital standpoint if you're talking 80 units 100 units in Vancouver that would still be a, a reasonably sized project it's uh, it's always staggering how fast the budgets widen out there
2: yeah and that's definitely' one of the reasons why we're not looking as much in some of the smaller communities which obviously for other investors are, are, are there's some great opportunities there. As, uh, as Aaron was saying, that uh, there probably are, you know, pent up demand for new product. And we're definitely seeing that across the country in the big markets. But I can imagine it's happening in the smaller markets as well. It's just not where a space that works for us. Partly it is how much capital can you deploy into a smaller market? And, you know, how thin can we spread our team? And that's another, you know, obviously another important consideration. The
0: economies of scale and the ability to make a real imprint on the market. Yeah. So you mentioned some uh, some smaller markets outside of Toronto and Vancouver. Are those the markets you see the largest rental growth coming from? Or what's the driving decision behind uh, one small market over another?
2: Well, sometimes it's, op- you know, obviously it's opportunity, but we're lo- we look at the economic fundamentals of these different markets. So we're looking for strong job growth. We're looking for economic diversity. So not trying to, you know, not have just a one industry community. And then from there, looking at just the dynamics of who rents, we look for communities where there's a bit of a, what we call a lifestyle renter, an opportunity you know, where people are choosing to rent as opposed to maybe renting because they don't have any other options for hmm. whatever reason, because um, that's you know, sometimes places where you will see this premium on, on newer purpose built. So we will look for what the percentage of renters are versus owners. So the national average is about 70% people own. So a place where that's lower that, you know, to us signifies it could be a, a good rental market to consider.
1: What factors do you think contribute to that, to, to have a lower percentage or a higher percentage of renters in a marketplace than, than in the national average? It's often housing costs. Right. So, you, you know, like a
2: fast-growing community, like say Barrie, Ontario, which is uh, just north of Toronto, it's a fast-growing community, but it's about an 80% home ownership rate. Mm. And so it's a hint that one of the reasons people move to Barrie is to get into ownership. And given the rents we need to make a project viable, they often, in a slightly lower priced community in terms of ownership, for the rents we would need, you could probably buy something for less money per month. Sure. And that's obviously a consideration where it may be challenging to keep a brand new building leased and, up. And
1: get the, the, get the occupancy levels that you need.
2: Yeah. And you think about sometimes construction costs aren't that different. Land costs may be cheaper, but construction costs are high or it would be roughly the same concrete as concrete.
0: Um, and for anybody not familiar uh with it's but an hour north of Toronto, and it's definitely one of the surrounding cities that does draw attention from people who just start Yeah, and there are places.
1: we have colleagues that work in our office downtown Toronto that commute every day from Barrie and they're working 4 days a week down here and they're commuting that hour and 20 minutes simply because they can afford a nice 4 bedroom house with a big backyard versus a little condo in Toronto, right? So
2: Yeah, so that's how we start um looking at what cities to invest in beyond the ones where we're already familiar and comfortable? Which you know is basically about seven cities that we've uh, we've long had rental apartments in.
0: Do you track uh, competitors, I guess, in terms of pipeline for different cities. We will
2: as we're working on different different projects. I don't per se the development teams often and often will outsource that to a consultant or in some cases there's um, companies that actually do track this and we just subscribe to the information. So I don't necessarily have it off the top of my head. We have access sure. to it as we need it for reports.
0: Because it would be that'd be a little too fine tuned per development site for what you're doing, which I guess is more of a national level kind of cover of apartments, right?
2: Yeah. So I will make sure that you know colleagues have access to that. But yeah, it's, and then you're looking at what's going to be competitive to your specific site. So it's not necessarily how many rental apartments are under construction in the GTA we might be more interested in the particular node where it's going to be competitive. And then the timing, you don't necessarily want to open the exact same time as everybody else.
1: Yeah, sure. Because
2: even in a high demand market like Toronto, you're competing with everybody right in the node, whereas it'd be, you know if you can stagger it. So there's certainly a timing thing to keep an eye on.
1: When you're submitting, let's say okay, I'll play maybe a, a hypothetical. If they, the decision makers say we've got this site, and we or we've got multiple sites, and we're choosing between you know a couple of them. And they say you know Wendy and your team, please provide us with a report that gives us the support in one way or the other. What are the sort of four or five different? metrics that they're looking at that you know, are the biggest indicators for whether they would proceed or not. And I understand it would change from time to time depending on the location, but I'm just curious, what is it that they're really looking for? Is projected per square foot rents or is it uh, absorption rates of the units or you know what, what kind of things that, that really get them going like, okay, this is a good project. We should proceed. Yeah. Well,
2: actually the research team doesn't get involved as much in that. That's the development team. Okay. Sure. would be doing that. But what, I mean, at the end of the day, you're looking at supply considerations, who else is in the market coming out and then demand considerations. And then. So then
1: let's pick the demand considerations. What are the things that they're looking for? Is it demographics? Is it, what is it? Certain age of the, of the jurisdiction? Income. Yeah. Income levels. Like what are they looking at that, that would kind of guide them towards proceeding or not?
2: Good question. Tricky question to answer. Okay. So we, this may not work out. Um, <laughs> sure.
1: Or okay, maybe just what are the things that you think are a, a good guiding point for helping decide whether, you know, what projects make sense and don't from the demand perspective? Yeah.
2: Well, one, you know, in some markets, like maybe I'll, I'll go to our, some of our research sure. on demand in say for Toronto and Vancouver, like, and this gets to one of the other questions you had. Right now, you can't really build enough purpose-built rental mm. in Toronto and Vancouver. The pent-up demand is so large that we did a survey at the end of 2016, and we asked renters, and they, they had to have an income of over 50000 to be in our survey, but they could be in renting condos, renting houses, whatever. But we asked them, if you had to choose between a unit and a purpose-built rental building and an equivalent condo unit, same rent, same street, same quality, would you choose purpose-built or condo? 62% said purpose-built, and 70% of them said they'd pay more to be in the purpose-built. Sure. Yeah, and sure. so if you then do the math against how many people are renting condos in Toronto and Vancouver versus the stock of purpose-built rental, you get to a pent-up demand for purpose-built rental of over 110,000 units in Toronto and over 30,000 in Vancouver. So I look at it from demand. There's no, there's, there's, just, no question. there's no lack of demand. The, the only question might be exactly is it's more almost gets down to, well, who at this location is likely to be your renters versus at another location, but there's not a, sh- there's not a shortage of demand.
1: Do you um, want to talk about why that is, why the discrepancy or why people are more interested in renting from an apartment owner versus a condo owner?
2: Well, we're wishing we asked that follow-up question. The thing with the surveys is, you never—we got a much higher response rate than we were expecting. Yeah. So we, on that particular survey, we did not follow up. On subsequent ones, we have, or in other opportunities, we've we've been able to ask, or others have asked, and we've been able to get a hold of the answers. And really, I think it comes down to a lot of people are recognizing this, the value of the service offering. That you know, we professionally manage these apartments. Mm-hmm. When you rent from a purpose-built rental landlord, you know, you're the client. When you rent from an individual condo owner, you might have a fantastic landlord. There's lots of good condo owners out there that rent out their suites, but you might have somebody who doesn't even live in the city. You might have someone who doesn't care if the toilet's blocked up yeah. or, you know, your dishwasher's not working, you know, other factors like that whereas, you know, obviously we've got maintenance on on site or at least on staff where someone can be there very quickly to fix any problems. Security so of tenure. If you're a good renter and you pay your rent,
1: Y- you always know, there you're, you can live there for 30 years and we'd never move you right
2: Exactly. And so people recognize that. I mean, I think almost everyone I know who's ever rented a condo has had it sold out from
1: under them. Absolutely. And you guys
2: probably know people in Toronto that have had that happen. And I suspect that those stories get out there. And even if it hasn't happened to you, you'd say, yeah, if I had to rent, I would be. It's in been a
1: really interesting store. process as, as we've had all these condos built in the, in the city of Toronto. And I'm sure Vancouver is the same. And then now all of a sudden you're, there are so many renters. I mean, I, some of the buildings I hear are 60, 70, 80% renters, not, not end users. And then now we're starting to realize that People don't really like renting condos. They only were because that was the only stock available because we were not building the purpose-built apartment buildings. And to add on to your commentary, the amenities that are available in, in some of these purpose-built rentals far outweigh what you're getting in a regular condo because the condo borrower, condo developer owns it once, sells it, and it's gone. They don't really worry about, you know, are you happy with the the quality of the amenities and the bonus the add-ons that you're getting on a year to year basis?
2: Yeah, well, certainly, it, you know, especially in the US, there's been a, there's quite an amenity war going on in mm-hmm. purpose-built rental that hasn't fully hit Canada. But yes, any, anything that we're developing, we are certainly looking at putting in a really nice amenity package that usually involves, you know, a rooftop or a podium deck of some sort. There's, you know, interior spaces for gatherings and parties mm-hmm. that you can rent. A nice fitness center is very normal. Bike parking in certain is a big issue in, in certain markets.
1: We had a previous guest on. I, I, now I can't remember who it was, but they were talking about you know their strategy going forward on purpose is to make sure you have a, a, a nice restaurant, you have a nice coffee shop, like you have places where people can come home, you know, grab their wife, go for a nice dinner, don't have to leave the building, but you know they get that kind of added value for you know just the comfort of living in that kind of area dog-washing spaces, we've always heard that.
2: Oh, pet amenities are very, pet amenities amenities, amenities are very big. And in fact, I think it might be a US stat that, that I read, but you know, more dogs than people living or more dogs than children living Uh, in apartments. I believe it. So, you know, you think about, yeah, you don't need a playground. You might need a dog run, Uh, (laughs) although depending on where our our projects are, in some cases we are, we do have play spaces for children too.
0: In terms of people paying for that, do you track the divergence in what people will pay for new versus old build?
2: Certainly, yeah, we notice it in our own product. Um, you, you look at the premium in CMHC, you can see CMHC, you can break out newer generation product versus older. So you can see the difference in rents. And, and yeah, it's it's large. And, and although, you know, in a place like Toronto, Vancouver, everything's going up because you've got a lower than 1% vacancy. But yeah, the, the, the demand for new and in, in the same survey that I mentioned, we also asked people about if you could, had to choose, would you choose... A larger unit, but it's older, dated kitchen, dated bathroom, or a newer unit, new kitchen, new bathroom, but much smaller. And back in 2011, we asked the same question and we, every city was different. But in some, you know, in some places we said it was about 50-50 and now it's in some cities getting down. 75% want the new mm. and 25% would go to the old. Toronto's different. Toronto's got about still about 50-50, but it used previously it was about 60 to 70 wanted the the old now it's at, uh, at curious. About 50/50. They're, so they're
1: valuing the they were valuing the space over the quality. Now they're reversing that trend. Yeah. Any any sense why?
2: It may be that the old is just getting that much older. Yeah. Fair. Um, the other thing we're finding in, in our what we call our legacy units. These are you know, slightly older buildings when we're doing the upgrades. The biggest thing that, that seems to be important to people is getting in suite laundry. So there may be an implicit thing in people's minds that with the small unit, I'm going to get a stackable washer dryer in there somewhere versus the older unit I'm, I'm doing that because that's certainly one thing that, that we're seeing and, and a lot of other landlords uh, are talking about it as well that um, people are really valuing having their own laundry. Uh, but otherwise, I think it's also people don't need as much stuff do you need it used to be if you wanted a large TV, it took up half of the room. Now yeah. you can hang on the wall, or people don't even have a large TV, they just watch Netflix on their iPad. Right. For entertainment. Curious. So I think you can probably imagine, you know, your stereo speakers. Think about in nineteen eighties construction. Well, how big of a space did you need just for stereo speakers? Whereas now you don't.
1: Has your research covered micro suites? or sort of that the right size of suite cuz you know clearly that's a that's an important component to the demand from these renters well,
2: certainly, yeah. Over time, it's been a few years. We certainly did take a, a good look at micro suites. We haven't really gone that direction on any project. It just hasn't happened that mm-hmm. all, all the pieces came together. Even
0: Canada wide, they're not. They're, not they're really
1: not. They're ours, In yeah. fact, any most of the developers that we've been talking to, it's the, the trends reversing. Right? They were bringing suite sizes down and down, and now they're all of a sudden reverting back to larger, larger suites and more two bedrooms and more three bedrooms also.
2: Yeah, well, I think the the research, and we've been using this research on the small, because we've had it since 2011 on the small versus large, to really think about that, that over 20 years, when our building's not new, having really tiny units may not serve really well. Whereas over time, if you can go slightly bigger, there's a longer, potentially a more future-proofing in that. Because when it's not the latest and greatest, someone will still want that unit because it's slightly big. It may be slightly bigger than something that's that's well, new. Or the condo product that's coming out at the same time as it that's in the rental smaller. stock as well. One, one of the comments
1: I heard was the smaller units have a large, fast, more quick rollover, right? So if you're looking to have longer-term tenants and save the cost on, on the rollover, Uh, The larger units will, will kind of, I guess, notionally give you, give you longer term tenants.
2: Yeah, I'm not, I'd have to check with our operations people on whether there's a large difference, but I can imagine there would be because, you know, at a certain point you can only live in a studio so long. If you think about life stages, you can right, live there exactly. 25, but then you couple up with somebody and you want you Or your income goes space. up
1: enough for you to afford the one bedroom, whatever it is, right? So yeah. it, I've heard notionally that less bachelors are being constructed now simply for that reason, at least on the purpose-built product.
0: I've heard actually as a counterpoint to that argument, at least here in Ontario, where the Wynn government recently ended. The 1991 exemption for rent control uh, that having small units that don't facilitate growth are beneficial because that way you roll over the units faster and they reset to market.
1: That's a good point, too.
0: Yeah. I'm not advocating one way or the other. I'm just saying that's what that's interesting.
1: No, that's fair. That is fair, especially in a rising rent environment that we have today where rents can change, you know, a hundred bucks per unit pretty quickly. That might be a good value to have. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and that's relatively relatively new legislation. But there's also, you know, there's there's a lot of research that we're starting to look at that, you know, demographics are changing, and you know, is there enough two bedroom and larger product? Given in places like Toronto and Vancouver, there's a lot of people that want to be here for job reasons or just because they like it, but not able to afford to own, and yet are going to have families, and so be thinking you know be thinking about larger units and then you at the other end of the time spectrum you've got potentially downsizing empty nesters who are showing a greater interest in switching to purpose built rental but they're not going to fit in 800 square feet no if anyone's tried to move Parents or in-laws into condos. they got a lot of stuff. They have
0: stuff. <laughs> a <whole> lifetime's worth. <laughs> a lifetime's Well,
2: exactly. And they may have grandkids they want to have over. And so the, the, there may be some demand whether, I think the question that hasn't been played out yet is whether, let's say for a three-bedroom rental unit, what we would need to charge for it. Is there a market for that versus would they try to buy a what? condo? Not that you can find a three-bedroom condo,
1: but curious talking about demographics. I mean, the older demographics were stuff was easy to accumulate or okay to accumulate because you had four bedrooms, but you're only using three. So you could just put stuff in the extra bedroom and you had a big dining room and a big living room and a big kitchen area. And you had your, your two car garage. So you could always just fill that up with your stuff versus nowadays we're living in 700 square feet. So I'm not, I'm not buying anything unless it fits in my
0: pocket. It was also kind of the leap uh, for Vancouver and Toronto specifically moving into more of uh, a Manhattan style of living where people, from cradle to grave, live in apartments and don't ever have an expectation of doing anything other than that. And obviously Toronto, Vancouver, not there now, but it's, it is in the near term time horizon.
1: You know, go talk to somebody from Montreal, right? That's their mentality. There's tons of, I mean, lots of that demographic. I've never thought about owning a house because it's just a renter's, it's just a renter's city.
2: Yeah. More, more of a culture of renting. Yeah. As you say, you see it in Europe and maybe at some point we'll see more of the European model come in whereby you rent the space and maybe you take a longer lease on it, but you do your own kitchen or you do your own. You know, you bring right. in a lot of your own appliances rather than uh, using the landlord. So, so
1: are you building more two bedrooms and three bedrooms just based on based on that research?
2: It depends on the market. Depends on where we, we have a suburban uh, product coming up in uh, North Vancouver, and it has more two and three bedrooms than we've we've done in some others. But in a really downtown core location, you where you know we're thinking it's probably more singles.
0: Uh, as a lender, I have to ask: Do you track interest rates or predict interest rates, and how big of a factor do they play into your research?
2: In terms of impact on on apartments, um, certainly, like in terms of cap rates, the work we've done, you know, there's not that as strong of a correlation as you might think. Cap rates right now, I think, are driven by just strong demand for investment dollars going into rental product, and right now, that that demand is insatiable. And we were going through some some deals at, uh, at the office today that have happened. And you're starting to get some cap rates in the twos. Now, these are apartments that have some rents that could go up that are probably uh, you know, under market, but still there's some you know really, really low the, rates. Yeah, the
1: as is cap rates too, but the stabilize might be a five once <laughs> they've just, spent millions of dollars fixing it up. Sure.
2: Yeah, fair enough. I mean, the one place where interest rates may be affecting the apartment market is the fact that it's probably pricing even more people out of the ownership market because it's driving up mortgage rates and you know, already there's that plus new legislation from governments. And so what the impact may well be that uh, we have people staying in rental even longer and that further increases demand, Mm -hmm. which obviously is is tending to drive up rents right now, uh, which is obviously good for landlords and not so good for renters and not so good for the economy either. At a certain point, you know, housing gets too expensive and that will start to slow economic growth in, in my, in my view.
1: Oh, for sure. Well, it's less, less disposable income, right?
2: Yeah, it's less disposable income. And they're just getting to a point where if you're, you know, can you grow jobs in a region that has, that where housing is getting so expensive, where you then have to start pricing that into your salaries. So places like San Francisco, it's what people pay for rent is crazy, but their salaries kind of match it like sure. you know if you're making 2x what someone in Toronto does for roughly the same job you can pay 2x on Well, and would rent.
1: you think there might be a, some kind of brain drain as as those that that are the the, the capable the employer ease that decide you know what I'd rather live somewhere where I can afford a nice comfortable life and commute 15 minutes to work and so I'm going to move to Saskatoon where it's where it's affordable and I can still make the same kind of money or money that's sufficient to allow me just to pay for my children's ex- you know university and all that kind of stuff
2: I think for some people, but I think there's also, if lots of people were doing that, we wouldn't have the housing crunch that we have. Sure. So obviously there's more people coming into places like Toronto and Vancouver than leaving, or we wouldn't have this problem. Yeah. So obviously, but for you know any individual, certainly there's going to be an appeal to, especially if you can do a very similar job to what you could do in Toronto or Vancouver, which is not everybody, but you can imagine if you're a teacher or a doctor, you might say, I could do this anywhere. Let's Let's move on. The, there's just that allure of all the types of jobs in, in mm-hmm. some of these big cities and the, the lifestyle that first sure I, I, are I
1: put that out there, but I don't think it's true. I mean, again, using the Manhattan as the case, it 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 could be as expensive as it wants, but people are always going to want to live there because it's you know it's got that vibe and that energy and that access to whatever it is that you're looking for.
0: But does Toronto and Vancouver
1: have that? I don't know. I don't know. Fair enough. It's we're certainly I'm not comparing Toronto and Vancouver to Manhattan. But I'm just you know as a as a point of comparison, although I am comparing them together. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks very much, Wendy. That was a wonderful conversation. Um, do you have any, any uh, points
0: that you want to you make at the end? Any closing thoughts on apartments? Anything uh, Well, that, bright in your world?
2: Well, I think one, one interesting trend that we're now starting to see, both in Toronto and Vancouver, is more purpose-built, just starting to be built in suburban locations, whereas you know, in the last few years, the starts have all been, or primarily been, in the core uh, or in the inner We'll call it the inner sure. city. So the city of Toronto, the old city of Toronto proper or the, the city of Vancouver proper. So I think the, uh, the shift towards suburban.
1: Um, Do you think that's just yeah. is that a simple byproduct of the ability to, to achieve the rents you need to make it a, a successful project?
2: I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to that. But it's also been the urbanization of some of these suburban mm-hmm. areas. So that, you know, the sites that are working have, they have transit, they have walkability. There's a lot of condos in the area so that you've you've got that density that then drives the support for all the amenities, the restaurants and the retail and, and the cafes and brew pubs and, and everything else. Sure. So then it becomes a very viable node. And having condos is great for from our perspective because there'll be some rental units in those. We can start to get a sense of what people will pay for a mm-hmm. new product. So that also helps give you a benchmark where, where you can start to say, yeah, we think we could do that. And then the municipalities themselves in some cases are very enthusiastic about rentals. So they're making it a little easier on developers with ideas uh, in in some cases than they might see in some other municipalities
1: I know we're I know we're wrapping up, but I, I guess we've missed one good topic that we'll cover. And it, the um, and maybe it's just the connection between transportation and and purpose built. And as you were talking, I was thinking about Vaughn and how that connection to the subway system has probably really kind of transferred the the appeal of, of building in that area. Now that you know that your tenants would have access direct to the to the subway line, and how do you think? I know, given your background, what the impact of transportation has on where you look to build and, and the the value that the transportation adds to your projects.
2: Well, certainly, you know, for rental also, you're thinking about the total cost of, of housing and transportation for your future renters and your future residents. And so, yeah, tr- having transit is really key for uh, the viability of, of some of the new projects, just to be thinking about that long term. Again, the long term, do we like this over 20 years? You know, gas prices are getting fairly high they could get higher we could be switching off a carbon economy at some point over over 20 years so all of these things make but you can't uh, put a lot of
1: stock in a municipality following through with building anything can you
2: on in terms of what subway subway
1: or, or yeah <laughs> lrts or whatever it that's may the, be right well let's
2: see yeah, that's i think toronto is has had, has, has not done very well on follow through yeah. And uh, we try to track what's going on with transportation projects in the research team. And so when we well, we often have a summer student do this for us. We usually get urban planning type students in. Right. So they, it's up their alley. And for Toronto, it's always show us what is absolutely past the point of no return. It's going versus, you know, being talked about. <laughs> yeah,
1: like the subway in Scarborough. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, and things can change. Yeah. Whereas, the, whereas actually the other cities in Canada, there's, you know, once it's funded, it's funded, It's it, it moves along. Or once it's being talked about, you pretty much know where it's going to go, even right. if it doesn't quite have funding. There's not quite as much volatility sure. in the thoughts good, about good where word. where yeah. transit is going to be as uh, as Toronto.
1: I'm um, Toronto centric, so I, I apologize. You're you're <laughs> absolutely correct. You assume all politicians <laughs> yeah. are. Yeah, in yeah, sorry. You mean season. there are other cities outside of Toronto? Okay. Yeah, sorry.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, but transit and transportation are big issues in in all the Canadian cities, and you know, but and where how people are going to be moving around It's part of what we're thinking about of where to have real estate. Uh, long-term. Yeah. So definitely where, where transit is, is where places that we, we look for, for where to be thinking about adding or densifying existing sites.
1: Great. Thanks very much, Wendy.
2: Okay. Thank you. I enjoyed
0: it. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario license number 10514 and 11252.